You know, as nostalgic as we are about Christmas and the Christmas season, what's amazing about the historic account of Christmas and what happened at Jesus' birth is that in the middle of the story is this narcissistic king who's waging a war on Christmas. He's trying to destroy Bethlehem. He's trying to destroy the light of the world. He's trying to destroy anything that comes up against him. If you were writing this story, if you were making this up, you would not include infanticide in the middle of your holy story of God coming to earth. So why is that? And in the same way that Herod is waging war on Christmas... The Bible says there's something in each one of our lives that wages war on Christmas. Now, we could probably identify a few. Relational havoc seems to take away from the meaning of Christmas. Facing the unknown in your job or unknown in a relationship, potential pending divorce, that can avoid your war on Christmas. Unknown medical reports that you're still trying to figure out and need to hear back from. All of these things can war on the nostalgic view of Christmas. But the Bible gives a fascinating diagnosis as to what really is in us that destroys our Christmas. It's not just the unknown. It's not just relational havoc. The book of Galatians says that God sent his son at a particular time in history for a particular reason. And God sent his son, born of a woman, to actually redeem, which means to buy back, to buy his children out of bondage. Now, do you feel like you're in bondage? Most people don't. And yet Christmas says the main reason he sent his son was to redeem or buy us out of bondage. Well, what are we in bondage to anyway? And this is where it gets fascinating and a little convicting. The Bible says the real war on Christmas is within you and I that we have not just desires but over-desires. What's an over-desire? Well, think of it this way. A desire is something I prefer to live with and over-desire is something I can't live without. And these are usually good things. Work. I desire work. I love work. But when work becomes an over-desire, you end up sacrificing your health, your marriage, and your family because work became not just a desire that I prefer to do well in, but an over-desire I can't live without. A marriage can be a great thing, a wonderful thing. You can desire to have a good marriage. But when you make the marriage the thing you can't live without, the expectations you lay on your spouse can be smothering and you end up destroying the thing you most love because you can't live without it and you end up destroying it. You can prefer, as we all do, to have kids who obey. We all prefer to have kids that obey. But the minute that desire becomes an over-desire, I can't live without obedient children. Oh, friends. You have placed your happiness and your identity into the hands of a 16-year-old. I do not recommend this. And the book of Galatians comes in. It says, if you want to know how to experience the real meaning of Christmas, you need to walk in the Spirit. And walk in the Spirit so that you do not fulfill the lusts, it says, of the flesh. Now, the word lust actually comes from a weird Greek word, epithemia, which actually means an over-desire. You're trying to make a thing into more than a thing, an ultimate reality, an ultimate identity. And that lust or that over-desire is going to end up waging war on your Christmas and destroying the very things you love. And we're going to see that today with King Herod. Recently, I got a chance to hear a speaker named Juliet 
Fund, and she does a talks with CEOs and companies about creating margin in your life to keep certain things from becoming over-desires. She notes there's at least five things that are good things that if they become an over-desire can destroy your company, your culture, your family, your mental health. One is drive. We all love drive. That's a great desire. But when it becomes an over-desire, that drive becomes overdrive, and your health and your body suffer and your organization does as well. Excellence is a great desire, but it becomes perfectionism when it's an over-desire. Needing information to make good decisions, that's a great, great desire. But sometimes you overanalyze everything. Well, you've been in companies that way, right? It's analysis paralysis. That information becomes overload of information. She notes another, activity. It's great to desire activity, to doing things, to having fun. But when activity becomes an over-desire, it becomes meaningless busyness with no real focus. Money can be a desire. It's a great thing. It's a wonderful thing. It's a God-given thing. Deuteronomy says God's given you the ability to produce wealth. But when money becomes an over-desire, you overspend or oversave, thinking some magic number is going to make you feel secure in your saving, or you overwork to get more of it. So how can we keep good desires from becoming over-desires and destroying the light of the world, the Bethlehem in our own Christmas this season? We're looking at three words, over-desire, overcompensate, and overjoy, and try and unpack this together. The first word is over-desire. So what is an over-desire again? It's something I, I can't live without. It's I take a good thing and I turn it into an ultimate thing and it ends up destroying me and everyone around me. That's what happens with Herod. Herod is a king and he is one of the most wealthy men in human history even to this day. He's one of the most powerful men even to this day in history. What it says in the text is that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. And Herod could have said, my goodness, I'm the king of the Jews, which is what he was known for as, finally the Messiah is coming, I'm going to be the first to step in line to introduce God to my people. He could have done that. But he has not just a desire to be king, not just a desire for reputation and power and influence. He has an over-desire. He is defined by his reputation, defined by his power, and defined by his money. And so when he hears the news that God has come to earth, it says Herod was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. Because when you make something an over-desire, it doesn't just affect you. It affects everyone around you. All of Jerusalem with him was troubled. There's five things we can observe from this that I think are worth reflecting on in your own over-desire. When something becomes an over-desire for you, number one, there's fear. There's fear of losing it, fear of what your life is like without it. It's hard to find contentment without it. You experience fear more than contentment. This thing that's supposed to make you happy brings a lot of fear because it never fully satisfies and you always wonder if you're going to keep it. The second thing you can use to identify your over-desire is that when you lose it or when it, there's a threat of losing it, a comfortable life, safe passage through the season of life, your health, your beauty, you're not just disappointed when you lose it, you're devastated. 
It's not just something you prefer to have. You're devastated. And Herod is devastated. He is troubled at a deep level that everyone around him is troubled as well. Thirdly, if something's an overdesire, it's very hard to rejoice when other people have more of it than you. Somebody talks about their success and says, wow, I can rejoice with you who rejoice. You're angry. They didn't earn that. I worked harder than that. I deserve more than that. Which leads to envy. And Herod is envying this king of the Jews, this baby. He's, he's, he's so insecure, he's envying a child. And envy is something that nobody ever comes into the pastor's office and says, Pastor, let me sit down. I need to talk about two things. I envy a lot and, and I have a lot of greed in my life. Not once in 20 plus years of ministry has anyone ever come in my office and said they're struggling with greed or envy. Because it's like a termite. It eats you from the inside out. It's interesting because envy, they did a study in Germany, and they found that, especially around the holiday season, one-third of people on social media get incredibly depressed around the holidays. And the main reason they're depressed is because their life doesn't live up to the pictures of other people's life, of their family, and their Christmas, and their season. In fact, people, 30-year-olds in particular, are particularly envious and feel depressed about family togetherness. Because it looks like everyone else has family who are getting together with no problems and just not them. Sometimes we can be envious of people's success because somebody's doing something we know we should do, but we're not going to do it. My mom hangs out with a bunch of women in the red hat club, you know, the red hat, hat people. And so the red hat people often can be, it, it, all of us can be this way. Just start the, the whole time you get together, you just sort of complain and grumble about life and you know, gossip about people, blah, 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 blah. Well, this one lady... Not, not my mom's friend, another friend I was talking about, she decided she was going to start being more thankful, start focusing on what was good in life. Well, she kept coming to the Red Hat meetings, and, and instead of people sort of celebrating her freedom from the bondage of being complaining all the time or, or being more thankful, they started really sort of, well, she thinks she's better than us, doesn't she? She's not engaging this gossip, doesn't she? Oh, my goodness. Same thing. Somebody starts working out and getting more healthy, and you feel like, well, I'm not, ha- not hanging out with them. I'm going to hang out with people like me who don't eat quite as well because I feel bad about myself when you're working out. Sometimes even a good marriage... Maybe you're going through a marriage struggle and you meet somebody who's got a really great marriage. Instead of rejoicing that they have a great marriage, you actually are envying it. Like, And you end up actually disassociating with things because you don't know how to rejoice with those who rejoice. And that's what happens with Herod. This over-desire, he's turned good things, power, reputation, titles into ultimate things that defined him. The last thing we notice about this is that when you have an over-desire, whatever your it is... You can't enjoy having it because you're so afraid of losing it. Do you have something like that in your life that you're so afraid of losing it that you don't actually enjoy it? Let me show you some pictures of Herod. Herod, I got a chance in 2012 and 2015 to go and visit just three of his palaces. This one in the lower section is called the Herodian. It's on a mountain. That is a parking lot with cars on the left, by the way, to give you the size of the mountain. He built that mountain bucket by bucket load of dirt so that he could put his castle on the top of it and it would be high enough that he could look down on the city of Jerusalem. Everything you see in Jerusalem today, he built that temple, King Herod did. He also has a place on the sea called Caesarea Maritime I got to visit. He's got not just a home theater. He has a Roman Colosseum theater to watch plays in. He has a natural place to run uh, the games right there outside of his house in a government building. 
He owned that. And just another one of his castles, been to the Dead Sea Masada, he built Masada. 11 swimming pools and a fully functioning sauna at 6 BC. Shocking. Got to walk through it. And yet, do you think he's enjoying all of it? No, instead of enjoying what he has, he's obsessed, overwhelmed with the thought of losing what he has because all these things have become over-desires in him. And when you have an over-desire, it's a very lonely place. In fact, Herod was so worried that when he died, nobody would care. He was so worried that when he died, no one would mourn him. That he gave an edict to his son that if he ever died, his son was on the same day to kill off all of the nobles in the entire country. So at least everyone would be crying on the day of his death for someone. That's a pretty lonely place. Which brings us to our second point. After you begin to look at your over-desires, what happens is over-desires cause you to overcompensate. What do I mean? Your desire for something is so strong that you become someone different to achieve it. You told yourself you would never cross those lines, but in order to get it, that reputation, that status, that approval from others, you had to become somebody different than who you are. And you hear that many people, I don't know what I was thinking back then. How did I end up there? Why did I do that? In your pursuit of something, you overcompensated and became someone different. And we see that in Herod's life. First, inauthenticity. Inauthenticity. He's two different people. He says to the wise men, wise men, gather around. Oh, oh, tell me. When you figure out where he is, you come back and tell me so I too may worship him. He pretends to be a Jesus lover when he's really a Jesus hater. He pretends to like the wise men. He really wants to strangle the wise men. Same thing's true in you and I. You need people's approval. You need certain status. You become different people. In this group, you become like this. In this group, you become like that. Now you've got to keep track of the two versions of yourself. The inauthenticity of so-and-so knows these facts, so-and-so knows these facts. I've got to pretend this is true here and this is true there. I've got to put on a, a face in this environment that I don't put on in this environment. And it just starts wearing you out because you've got to keep track of your secrets. And that's why inauthenticity always leads to secrets. Secret habits, secret relationships, secret bank accounts, secret struggles. That your public self and private self are no longer in alignment. And those secrets lead to you becoming controlling. Because people who have secrets have to control things. You've got to control that the secret doesn't get out. You've got to control that people don't find out about that habit, that bank account, that relationship. And Herod does the same thing. He suddenly is, is, is exceedingly angry, the Bible says, that they're here. Exceedingly upset that this is happening. He's devastated the idea of losing this. And he becomes controlling. He says, he sent them forth. I'm going to tell you to do this. You better come back here and do this. Next slide. You better come back here and do this. You better come back here right here at this time and let me know what's happening. Exceedingly angry, it says. And he sent them forth after he'd secretly called them. People who have secrets are controllers, and people who are controllers are very, very fearful. Fearful of losing it. Power, prestige, influence. And so controlling people become fearful people, and that's why Herod is waging war on Christmas. He's waging war on Christmas that he puts to death all the two-year-olds and younger to make sure he gets Jesus. Now, if I'm honest... I'm far away from that kind of fear. But you ever found yourself at a party? And as you're just talking generally, you end up sort of reading your resume off to people. 
There's an old joke that says, how do you find a pilot at a party? You don't. Don't worry. They'll tell you. But it's not just a pilot. It's also you rattling off your quarterly numbers, your big bonus, telling people that you're a CEO of a, of a certain size company. I used to do it with volleyball because I used to play on a double-A team. But then I, I, I did, got worse, so I started playing on a B team. But I, I'd always, you know, it didn't mean anything to anybody. You know, yeah, I used to play on a double-A team. Whenever you're throwing your resume out for no apparent reason, it's a sign of insecurity and fear within you. Herod had syphilis, and he ended up falling into a coma. And people thought he was dead. And his son did not kill off the nobles as he instructed. He came out of the coma, found out they didn't do his wishes. He threw a party, invited everybody in the kingdom to the party, including his son, who he slowly dipped in boiling oil during the party. This is the guy out to kill Jesus. But how did he get there? One step at a time. Starts with an overdesire. Starts with overcompensating, becoming somebody different, and you stay longer than you thought you'd ever stay. You cross lines you never thought you'd cross. And that is why we've got to get a handle on our overdesires before they destroy the things we care about most. So we can move from overdesires to overjoy. And here's where the wise men, also diplomats, also powerful people, also people of reputation and great wealth, and they experience something totally different. They come and find that child and they're overjoyed that there's a new king in town. They're overjoyed that God has come to dwell. They're overjoyed that their love for and preference for money and titles and reputation can subordinate themselves to an even greater joy. And overjoy is understanding that my desires cannot be removed, they can only be replaced. I'm always going to desire something. I just need something greater and healthy that all my other desires can subordinate themselves to. So how do you do that? Three ways. Number one, each one of us need to search very carefully Remember we told the wise men, go and search carefully for the child. I would encourage you to search carefully for what is that thing uniquely that you not only prefer, but tell yourself you can't live without. Go and find your unique one. Trace your fears and you'll find it. Trace the areas that you fudge the truth or lie and you'll find it. Trace your secrets and you'll find it. Go and search for your unique over-desire. And you can do that by asking yourself questions. Use questions to uncover where you find your core identity. The question the wise men had is, where is he? The one who's king of the Jews. The ultimate thing I'm going to define myself by. That's why the grace of God is so powerful. Unlike religion where you work really hard and and you feel close to God when you do well and you don't feel so close to God when you don't do well. The grace of God is that you have a right standing before God because of what Jesus did for you, not what you did for Jesus. And that is such a secure place that that becomes your ultimate over-desire and it always satisfies because no matter what else falls, I am accepted fully by God because of my belief in Jesus and his death on the cross. That is the message of Christmas. And then I can still prefer obedient children, but if my children disobey, it doesn't define me. What God says about me defines me. I can prefer work, but it doesn't have to overdrive me because what really drives me is knowing I'm a child of God. This becomes a way in which all the other desires we have subordinate themselves, like a, like a loan subordinated to another, to the thing that really matters. Juliet uh, Funt, in her work with companies, 
says we've got to ask questions of ourselves to be freed from over-desires. My word, not hers. If you struggle with the difference between drive and overdrive, you need to ask yourself, is there anything I can let go of? I'm trying to do everything. I'm micromanaging everything. Is there anything I can let go of? And Herod needs to let go of some things. If you have turned excellence into perfectionism, you need to look at those situations and ask yourself, when is good enough? On the 80-20 rule, you can always do more. You can always put more energy in. What is the return on investment of two more hours on this? How good is good enough? Three, if you struggle with info, analysis, paralysis, to really ask yourself, what, how much is really needed to make this decision? Because you can always research more. Related to activity. Of all the things I have going on, how do I prioritize what's really deserving of my attention right here and right now? These are great questions for freeing yourself from those over-desires. And money. I came across a friend many years ago. He said, Chad, I was 24 at the time. He said, here's the greatest question you're ever going to ask yourself when it comes to money. How much is enough and what will I do with the rest? He said, if you don't ask that question, you will upgrade yourself to death You'll overwork yourself to death, you'll oversave yourself to death, or you'll overspend yourself to death. If you don't ask the question, how much is enough, and what will I do with the rest? So search for your unique over-desire. Ask questions to put it back in its proper place. And thirdly, find a better king. See, the heart wants to serve some king. That king might be your status, performance, appearance, or money, but your heart longs to serve something. You just got to find a better king that your over-desires can subordinate themselves to. And that's exactly what the wise men find. They find an ultimate king. And look what happens. Where is he who's born king of the Jews? And when they saw the star, they rejoiced. They rejoyed themselves. They joyed again. They were happy again. They were happy all over again. The more they thought about God coming to dwell among them, God being the purpose of their life, God being the very essence of who they are, the more they rejoyed. And they rejoyed and rejoyed and rejoyed. And the more they rejoiced, the more they thought about it. And the more they rethought about it, the more they rejoiced. And they came and they found this king. And when they'd come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother. He's about two years old at this point. That's why Herod kills the two-year-olds. He fell down and they worshipped him. This is my ultimate allegiance. This is my ultimate purpose. This is the thing I'm going to live for. This is the thing I can't live without, the grace and hope and forgiveness of God. And because they worshipped him, it was easy to give to him. And they gave very lavish gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And that's another way, actually, to trace your over-desires. What's the thing that's easy to write a check to? My wife shows up and says, honey, can I go shopping? Where are you going? Well, I'm going to go get some so JCPenney's. Mm, yeah, here's your budget. Where are you going, honey? I'm going to Victoria's Secret. Use, use whatever you want. Here's a, here's a couple credit cards. Feel free. Feel free. Go ahead. Buy whatever you want. The area you give to the most shows the things are your higher priorities. And the question is, if you looked at your clock and your calendar and your checkbook, you would find out what your desires and over-desires are. The question is, What desires make you freer versus what desires keep you in bondage? I want to pray for us on that note, and then I want to tell you a little story about this particular unique moment in time in our church's history and where we feel like God is leading us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this powerful story of a narcissistic king 
who just tried to destroy and did destroy so many families, Father. And we don't want to be somebody's sad story. We don't want to be somebody's sad medical story or sad marriage story or sad leader story, Father. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for forgiving us and also for leading us. And God, as you do that, will you show us how we can celebrate Christmas untied or unanchored to how our relatives act or don't act, how our kids act or don't act, what we get or don't get. Father, we will have something of real meaning and purpose, and you will be our ultimate king. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to tell you a story as we get finished up today. I want to go back 20 years. 20 years ago, we gathered together, and there was like 30 people in somebody's backyard who had an idea of coming to Horizon. To give you an idea, that's like a a third of, of this small section here. And the church kept growing. So we met in a, in, a, in a high school for a little bit. And then we kept growing. And we had one service there. And we had another service on Wednesdays. I showed up about 15 years ago to the Wednesday service. Hey, do you want to come work for Horizon? There were more people on stage than in the audience that day. In fact, they asked me, are you excited about coming to Horizon? And I didn't know how to even answer the question. We're, we're at Skyline in Fairfax. I said, well, I'm not any less excited about being here now that I'm here. It was not a high endorsement. But I did believe in the vision of this two-service idea. And so I moved from Atlanta here, and it kept growing. We got the Sundays, and now we had a Sunday service, and, and a good day we'd be like, we got 100 people coming on Sunday. Wow! And then we, we moved our Wednesday service that had 30 people over to Sunday, and it started having like 70 people coming, and this service had like 200 people coming, and we kept growing. We are going to move into this building six years ago, and this room holds 500 people. And we're like, oh my goodness, this is going to look like we overstepped. We had too many seats. We, we could barely fill this up with our services. At that point, we had a two-service design, like we have today, where one service, our 850 service today, is 100% different from our 10 and 1110 service. One designed for the convinced, one designed for the unconvinced. One having praise and worship, the other having music, like you heard today, more performance songs. We got in this building, and after two months, we filled up both those services. So then we figured out, how do you cram three services in between 9 and 11.10? So we built an extra parking lot. We put 15 minutes between our services. And everybody's like, that, that's ridiculous. You can't do that. But it worked. And we kept growing. A couple years ago, we had a Saturday service because our 8.50 was so full, we had to create another equipping environment for those who wanted to go verse by verse through the Bible. And today we sit and we kept growing. So then we added this row here. These are new pews, actually, the front two rows. So people would actually have one more row. Then we had this section over here with the chairs. And we added TV. And people kept coming. We, we have what's called a high-quality problem. People want to hear the Bible in an applicable way for their families. So our teams have been working on, like, we got a master plan related to building an auditorium. It's like $21 million or something. Let's delay that. Let's delay that. Let's maximize the footprint we have. And so for the last two years, our teams have come back and said, the next step for us is we need to create 100 more seats. We can't do it in this room because we've used all the space here. We need to create a, a new environment somewhere within the current footprint of the church that can increase the capacity 20%. Now, to do that, we need to actually be able to shoot this room with high-quality camera. Right now, we have two, actually, security cameras that shoot us. We need a a, a really high-quality camera, a video studio to produce that, and then we need an LED screen in another environment in the church that is so high-quality that it doesn't feel like a less-than experience. So we've looked at churches all over the country, and they said, in order to do that, you need a live band and a high-quality image to make that work. So our team came back and said, that's what we want to do. And they said, here's the reasons that you want to do it. Number one, community. 
For those who were there in the original days of 30 people, man, you knew each other. It was all hands on deck. Let's serve. Let's help. Let's grow. When you were here in November and we opened this building, hey, invite your friends. Handwritten notes we all wrote to our friends to invite them to services. And I hear people many times say, I wish I'd been there during that time. Well, this is your chance to be part of that time. Now, the average church in America is 80 to 100 people. So in one sense, we're starting a church plant within the current church. And if you want to be part of that, the serving of that, and the inviting people, we want to make that, that environment so unique that it's actually sought after. Maybe an omelet bar or a waffle bar in there that you come in, maybe comfortable chairs, but a real unique environment that you can see the service in a powerful way. And we think the cost makes sense. One, we're trying to delay building an auditorium until uh, the last possible moment. We feel like God's saying you've really stewarded what you have. When we built this building, in case you don't know, we were very conservative on debt. We paid off the land and the building with a thousand people who gave within the first six months. We were zero. This is completely debt-free, this entire building. And we really feel like God honored that, so the money that goes into a church goes completely toward operations and missions and services, not toward uh, any debt payments. And so the cost per seat when we built this thing was $50,000 per seat when you think of the land cost and you think of the building cost. Adding 100 seats, 20% capacity, it only is going to cost us $10,000 per seat. So it's like 80% savings. And we feel like that's the best stewarded way to build this thing. We also feel like if you want to start a church plant today, it would cost a lot more than the, the budget that our team has given us for operations as well. So our team came back and they said that we need to raise $1 million to cover the video equipment, the video room to edit it, and the LED screens. And so we thought, well, we've got to bring that before the church because right now our, our services, especially this one at 10 o'clock, we filled up this room, we're filling up our overflow areas, we're filling up the hearth room, we bought headsets a couple years ago, we got everybody on headsets, and our friends, many are being turned away because it's a less than ideal experience or they just, we're, we're out of space. So I just want you to pray about, as you know at Horizon, there's no pressure on giving, but we need your help if you feel like this is your church and you believe in this vision and you believe in children and students learning the Bible in a compelling way. We're going to try and raise a million dollars as soon as possible so we can create this overflow space in this unique environment with the state of the art technology. To do that, we're going to need you know, a few hundred to $300,000 gifts. We're going to need some $10,000 to $100,000 gifts. And we're going to need many, many, many $100 to $10,000 gifts. And that's for the capital purchase of these three things. If we grow by another 20%, we're going to need additional children's support, keeping up the state of technology. We do need to have a separate band or, or additional band uh, uh, resources to make that service work. It does give us the option of using that space for both offering uh, exploring services and equipping services at different hours. So I would just ask you to pray about two things. One, if you, toward the end of the year, feel like you want to be part of this, you can give to our capital campaign by making your, your checks out to the future growth fund. But we also need, so taking money from one account to the other doesn't help us because we need both. We need to increase our operational expenses by 200000 for next year in order to grow the church in such a way. So, just ask you to pray about that. If you're a guest here today, this is not for you at all. If you are a regular tender at the church and you feel like I want to be part of the next phase of the church's growth, man, I would encourage you to do that. There's three ways you can think about that. One, you can go to horizoncc.com slash giving, and there's a pull down there. You can give both to the Horizon General Fund or you can pull down to the Future Growth Fund. If you want to give through text, you can actually text GIVE, G-I-V-E, to 513-817-0014. Or if you're old-fashioned like me, I occasionally still write some checks. You can actually put in the, in the bar there at the bottom corner whether or not it's for the operational fund or the future growth fund. 
What I'm excited about is I never would have thought that day I showed up and there were 20 people in the audience 15 years ago that God would be so faithful and do such amazing things. It has been so humbling. You think about many churches and church teams are sitting around today and they're having conversations about money. How do we keep the door open? How do we pay for the roof? When do we need to close? How do we hire anybody who wants to work here? Most of my friends are having those kind of conversations. And I am so deeply humbled to be part of a generous church and a growing church where we're asking questions like, how do we find seats for people who want to know more about how to apply the Bible to their life? It's very, very humbling that God would use me and use us to that. And I'm hoping that God will grow you spiritually through this as well as how he's grown me and all of us who've been through this journey. Let's pray together. Father, thanks again so much for your faithfulness. Thank you so much for the way in which you're drawing people to yourself. And thank you. You could do it so much better on your own, but you choose to use people like us. And Father, we give you the glory for that in Jesus' name. Oh, and one last thing before you go. When we do all this, we'll finally be able to put our services on video. So when you're out of town, you can actually watch the services. So when I'm blowing something up, you don't just have to hear it, you can see it as well and pass it on to your friends. So thanks for being here today. We'll see you all next week as we continue.